Here's a quote. When Agatha Christie began to think about getting down to a second novel, it was obvious what her subject should be, a poisoning. This was the start of a career in toxicity. Of the 66 detective novels she'd write, 41 feature murder, attempted murder or suicide achieved through poison. If you read through Catherine Harkup's excellent 17-page table of Christie's means of death, fell off a cliff, electrocuted, and throat cut, stand out as exceptions among the poisonings by strychnine, arsenic, morphine, and atropine. Cyanide would become a particular favorite. Agatha would use it to bump off no fewer than 18 characters over the course of 10 novels and four short stories. This episode on writing, Lucy Worsley's biography of the grand dame of mystery, Agatha Christie, an elusive woman. Welcome to Writering, a podcast where we believe that all writers are works in progress. My name is Sarah, and I'm a writer too. I want to get better at this thing that I love, so I'm turning to the people who have done it before. Each episode, I want to share an author's biography or autobiography or memoir with you. They're era, genre, and publication date agnostic. The only thing that matters is that they root around in the dirt of what a particular writer actually does. And I should pause here and say that what I'm doing here is not a comprehensive review of whatever book we're talking about. My goal is to draw out and pin down the real daily stuff of how writers write. From John Steinbeck's preferred pencils to Stephen King's well-documented feelings on adverbs to, as we're going to dive into today, Agatha Christie's tricks for plotting twists and transforming the domestic. So over the course of these episodes, I'm going to pull out some passages that I think really get at the the rituals and the practices and the tips and tricks of how they how these authors really do what they do. And at the same time, I want to know how they do it while grappling with the anxieties that live on all of our shoulders. So let's hit the books. How sad it will be when I can't write anymore, she mused. She might well have been thinking of Absent in the Spring, quote, written with integrity, with sincerity, it was written as I meant to write it, and that is the proudest joy an author can have. Sometimes I think that is the moment one feels nearest to God, because you have been allowed to feel a little of the joy of pure creation. That quote, and quote of a quote, comes from Lucy Worsley's 2022 book, Agatha Christie, An Elusive Woman. This book got a lot of press when it came out, and deservedly so. The TLDR is that it's an explanation of why Agatha Christie spent her life pretending to be ordinary when she was obviously anything but. In the process, Worsley delves deep into Christie's family, dysfunctional and otherwise, her tenuous grasp of finances, her revolutionary connections to both world wars, empire, and scientific discovery in the first half of the 20th century, her twin obsessions with homemaking and adventure, her turn from the revolutionary to uh, a sort of conservative, and of course how all of this intersected in her 70-plus novels and informed her writing process. Plus, I can't get away from this rapid-fire overview without plugging Worsley's analysis of the time Christie apparently faked her own death before turning up as a guest under an assumed name and claimed memory loss at, at a rural hotel. Whew. So here's the table of contents, the roadmap of what I want to share with you about how Agatha Christie approached writing. Chapter one is the transformation of the domestic. We think of Christie's novels, or at least I do, 
as the birth of something like The Cozy Mystery, although decidedly gothic and rife with real evil creeping through the door and sitting down to dinner. And that has to do with her very particular flavor of write what you know. So questions here are, what did Christy know? How did she mine her life for what became The Mysterious Affair at Styles, Murder on the Orient Express, and all the rest? How did she transform the everyday of her life into intricately plotted mysteries and deeply felt domestic dramas? And what can we take from it? Chapter 2 is about how Christy moved from chaos to plot. As a notoriously scatty woman whose friends claim to never see her writing, how did she do it? And chapter 3 is about what Worsley calls Agatha's Christy tricks. I count 13 such tricks that uh, give Christy mysteries the seasoning that make them feel like hers and sometimes work as shorthand to get a new plot moving. While these 13 are very Christy, as we'll see, uh, there's a lot of insight there about how to identify signature moves that could work for us as writers. Finally, we'll clean up some errata in some favorite passages of mine and close out with an epilogue, some things that I want to try in my own writing Uh, based on what we talk about here today. Chapter 1. Transforming the Domestic Let's start with a quote about the mysterious affair at Stiles. Although she painted it in dark colors, Agatha had created a fictional world that had much in common with her own. Even the novel's murder speaks directly to her own family situation. The victim, Mrs. Inglethorpe, is a matriarch, a powerful older woman along the lines of an Auntie Granny or even Clara. That's uh, Agatha's mother, to whom the book was dedicated. This is a major difference between Agatha and her most obvious role model, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Right from the start, Agatha places the lives of women center stage. So I told you in the prologue that a great deal of this book is grappling with why and how Christie plays out this sort of unassuming persona. The sticky, tangled answer to this has to do with how women of her class and time were supposed to think about professionalization, i.e. everything was a hobby or a pastime, not a career, and how that informed the obsession with the domestic, lived-in women's lives that populated her books. At the same time, though, that drawing from life and her particular place in English society in the circle she ran in was a major part of what made her so prolific. But I want to be careful about not just positing this as an, oh, she wrote what she knew. Because what becomes clear from Worsley's analysis is that our Agatha was a master at transforming the domestic spaces and routines of her life, the social dynamics and cues, the daily requirements of being and moving in society, and the stuffiness in both terms, like objects and the the kind of confined nature of running households and traveling around the world into something new, unexpectedly interlinked, and, because it's Christy, vaguely sinister. Here's a quote from the book. Why is this book, The Mysterious Affair at Style, so good? To start, Agatha is writing about a world she knew well. Her characters were family, friends, and servants, living in a country house, Style's court, where tea is served on the lawn. These were her own people. Multiple courtships are in progress, and the upstairs characters live off unearned income. So that's the first part, the this is what she knows. And we can all populate interesting places we visited with eccentric characters from our lives, uh, but that does not necessarily a good fiction make. So what's the extra oomph? 
This is from a bit later. But Stiles also shines a troubled light on the remnants of the Miller family at Ashfield. Most people, perhaps women in particular, spend their lives pretending to be something they're not. Agreeable, biddable, conscientious. Yet the shadow side of the feminine, as Young might have put it, was strong at Ashfield. Agatha's fiction shows she looked at her very feminine family and saw darkness there. We can intuit that while she loved her mother, she also feared Clara's power and her clinginess. Okay, and so that's the thing I want to pin down here, the transformation of what we know. And what Christy shows us is that that transformation doesn't have to be huge. She just darkened shadows that were already there, allowing them to touch and blend in interesting and unsuspected ways. So what is it that we can augment or highlight or twist even slightly about the people, uh, places, and experience that populate our own characters, settings, and plots to make them mix and react unexpectedly? How can we titrate them, I've got poisons on the brain because, Christy, to produce surprising compounds? First, you've got to collect the raw materials. This is how Worsley talks about it. As would be the case for the rest of her life, everything Agatha experienced became copy. She spent her time mainly among British expatriates, and I should say that in this quote comes from, this passage comes from the part of the book where Worsley is talking about uh, when Agatha and her husband Archie were going around the world as um, drumming up support for and interest in one of the sort of British national uh, exhibitions. So, back to the passage. She spent her time mainly among British expatriates, and her glance at them was sidelong. Everywhere she found irony, something new to laugh at, something to cut down to size. Even the cultivation of pineapples was amusing. She'd imagined them to grow gracefully from a tree and was disappointed to find them planted in a field like cabbages. So there are countless examples of how Christie collected and how she wrought fiction from the daily experiences of her life, especially her travels related to archaeological digs and national expositions, as we've talked a little bit about, and most also to do with how darkness and evil lurked in the everyday. Nothing exemplifies that more than um, the shift in her writing after she found out about her husband's long-term affair. Here's the passage. It would be this betrayal of her own ideal of her husband that would turn her into a truly gothic writer. Gothic not in the sense of seances or the supernatural, but in the sense that evil can enter, can enter, will enter. So obviously I don't mean to suggest that personal tragedy and betrayal like Agatha experienced when she found out about her husband's affair is like the key to unlocking how to transform your life into writing. But what I think happened here is that Christie had already figured out the transformation to the shadow that made her books go and allowed her to kind of scatter the real in her fiction in ways that made sense and that augmented the stories. Being aware of that means that even when the proverbial hits the fan, you can recognize, note, and eventually apply whatever alchemical magic you use to turn it into something new. Finally, Christy loved ruminating on and twisting the truly domestic. From the book, homemaking was vital to her both in life and art. You have to be concerned with a house, 
with where people live, she once said about her novels. Of course, there was a flip side to this. Agatha's fictional homes often represent the opposite of safety. Houses were the setting in which her nightmare of the silent, sinister gunman would appear. He'd slip into a domestic scene, sitting at the tea table or joining in the game, bringing with him that horrid feeling of fear. Agatha's own experiences of mental distress had showed how easily you could slip from security into danger. And then, from a little bit further on, the people who bought Agatha's books also loved thinking about houses and their meanings. Between 1920 and 1945, more than 60 new magazines aimed at middle-class female readers were launched, including Good Housekeeping and Women in Home. The home had been the whole world for women like Clara Miller. But for Agatha's generation, war and the collapse of domestic service meant that middle-class homes had to be reinvented. For Agatha's readers, the foundations of middle-class life were shifting, subsiding, declining. This helps explain why Agatha specialized in a peculiarly homely brand of death, murders of a quiet domestic interest, as she once put it. The critic Alison Light talks about a domestification of weaponry in Agatha's novels. The poisons she chooses are often found round the house. Arsenic used for the health of pets, cyanide for wasps, paint for a hat. She also employs the kitchen pestle, the meat skewer, the golf club, the paperweight, the tennis racket, and the steel ball from a bedstead as ways of killing. And we're going to talk a little bit more about um, how Agatha continued to draw from her life, and especially continued to draw from her life in a way that seemed a little bit chaotic in the next chapter. But I think that some of the passages we get here really highlight that that sense that not only was she writing for life, from her life, not only was she drawing on the shifting understanding of the domestic and of women's roles and of women's sphere and the household, um, but she was also imbuing them with uh, the real gothic sensibility that she was so interested in. Chapter 2. From Chaos to Plot We'll jump back into the book. But opening the notebooks is a tantalizing experience because much of what's in them simply doesn't make sense. More than anything else, the notebooks reveal Agatha's low-key approach to her work. Novels are plotted across multiple volumes, apparently according to whichever one happened to be to hand. Notebook 31, for example, has pages dated 1955, 1965, then back to 1963, then 1965 continued, and then on to 1972. She didn't even bother to use the pages in the right order. And the notebooks also reveal how work for Agatha was threaded right through life. Alongside ideas for characters and plots are a list of furniture, a reminder to make a hair appointment, a note of the train times to Torquay. Okay, so apart from the domestic being in this passage about Agatha's notebooks uh, and process, hello transition, what we're getting to now is her scattered, organic way of plotting novels. And I don't mean the writing itself, but the note-taking, ruminating, character-creating, all of that kind of stuff. In a world of plotters, hand up, I'm the one, and pantsers, Christy was somewhere on Saturn. Or was she? This is where we get back to the idea of the person, the persona Christy, Christy created. She was committed to not being seen as 
a professional, um, as silly as that seems to us now. And while her notebooks seem like they were absolutely bonkers, that doesn't mean there wasn't a method. The theme between her process and her career? Proliferate and cull. From the book. If you look at Agatha's publishing record over the 20s, it's obvious there was a strategy behind her growing success. The years 1921 to 1931 would see her write 11 books, but only five were in the classic detective format. One was a book of poetry, one a straight novel, and five were what Agatha called thrillers. She was experimenting with genre, finding out what would sell best. Quote, one is a tradesman, she explained, in a good, honest trade. You must submit to the discipline of form. So what it feels like to me, and this goes um, back to what we were talking about in chapter one, about collecting bits of people and experiences and details of places and the thinginess of the world, is that Christie almost creates a curiosity cabinet of delights and oddities and wonders that she then can go into and select and categorize and fit together in form and, most crucially for her, plots from the book. The writer John Curran is probably the person most familiar with Agatha's technique for developing plots, which involve taking notes in exercise books. We just saw that. Quote, plots come to me at such odd moments, she claimed, walking along the street or examining a hat shop with particular interest. I jot down my splendid idea in an exercise book. So far, so good. But what I inevitably do is lose the exercise book. She also described dreaming up plots, quote, while lying in the bath and I eat apples and drink cups of tea and have bits of paper and pencils around. The dream. The point that resonates with me in my writing is, yes, collect, 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 transform, twist, approach sideways. But then you've got to slot those bits and bobs together with a sort of precision and ruthlessness, which also takes experimentation and iteration in the chaos. From the book, the closest she came to a method was to list the scenes according to letters of the alphabet, and sometimes she'd rewrite a book to put them in a different order. Her notebooks reveal her iterative process particularly clearly in the case of Crooked House. She did not plan from the start to have the child as the killer, but considered three other characters before settling on the girl. Quote, she devised and developed, she selected and rejected, she sharpened and polished, John Curran explains. After years of study, he came to the conclusion that the, quote, very randomness contained within the notebooks was Agatha's method. Quote, this is how she worked, how she created, how she wrote. She thrived mentally on chaos. It stimulated her more than neat order rigidity, which stifled her creative process. So, Agatha Christie, plotter, pantser, gardener, tinker, tailor, spy. Okay, that's a different thing, but in any case, it's a little tough to say. But again, what resonates with me here is that despite her insistence on not being a bona fide author, Uh, which I think her chaotic note-taking and insistence on writing, physically writing, at the edges of the rest of her day-to-day life were meant to signal, she had a discipline around craft that winnowed the chaos of raw material into something sharp, bright, and at its best, although not always, seamless. Chapter 3, Christy Tricks 
Lucy Worsley has come up with, I think, 13 Christie tricks that make Agatha's novels go. I'm going to run through the list in a very quick example that Worsley gives for each one of them and then jump into what's useful about them for, for me and for us. Here we go. One, hiding an object in plain sight. For example, the rolled document as a firelighter that put mantelpiece objects out of place noticed by Poirot in The Mysterious Affair at Styles. Two, the hidden couple. For example, secret murderous adulterers in uh, Mrs. Inglethorpe's husband and her female companion Evelyn, also in Styles. Three, inserting abbreviated descriptions of places and things in conversation to be able to get on with the dialogue, which was what she really enjoyed, as in the description of the mansion in Chimneys. Four, the use of clothing to force us into making assumptions about people, as in Virginia's assumptions about Anthony as an ex-serviceman, also in Chimneys. Five, the omission of tiny but key facts by someone we've come to trust, which is one of the most frustrating to our readers, who took it as a betrayal in Ackroyd. Six, working in details from real-life crime stories, as in Charles Lindbergh in Murder on the Orient Express. Seven, the use of a strange and specific word to signal a clue that reemerges a la Chekhov's gun, as in Cairn? Quair? Point proven in Murder in Mesopotamia. Eight, the pattern you highlight isn't the pattern that matters, as in the ABC murders, which hinges on a dysfunctional family drama, not the alphabet. Nine, describing people's appearances rather than their ages to manipulate expectations, as in Murder is Easy, where the hero feels himself much younger than he is, only to have uh, that feeling somewhat embarrassingly upended. Ten, throw in contemporary news, as in The Spies in Destination Unknown. Eleven, using an actual place to stand up a story, as in Greenway's Gardens in Five Little Pigs. Twelve, recycle a good plot as in the unreliable narrator or witness in Roger Ackroyd, The Sitterford Mystery, and Endless Night. And 13, families that aren't immediately apparent, as in literally all of the mirror cracked from side to side. Okay, so I get that what you're probably saying is, well, okay, but those sound like absolute Agatha Christie cliches. And that's the point. They're identifiably Christie because she used them, and crafted her style from them. And, okay, so some of them feel particularly mystery writing specific, so if that's not your jam, something like hiding an object in plain sight or dropping a word like cairn, quern, quern, cairn, as both a signal and a clue, might not be whole hog portable. At the same time, though, I use lots of these Christie tricks in my writing. I've got a whole opening sequence that draws on the architecture of the mill at the North Carolina Textile Heritage Museum, and I love trolling old newspapers for backstory, color, plot fodder, plot fodder and world building. In my mind, this compendium of Christie tricks is twofold helpful. One, I think it's a fun exercise to mine these specific tri tricks as jumping off points or unsticking points even and maybe especially if you're working in genres other than mystery. I want to mine the news for my urban fantasy fractured fairy tales and subvert ex expectations about people through descriptions in a gothic horror story. 
The other way this list is helpful is as a jumping off point for your own list of tricks. And I realize that sounds a little like answering a request for writing advice with figure out what works for you. But I think there's a difference. These tricks aren't so much writing advice as a shorthand of writerly moves that works for Christy. So short sidetrack. My grandmother spent her career as a high-level secretary at a local construction company and took all of her notes in shorthand. If you are young, look it up. I always assumed that when you learned shorthand, everybody learned the same thing. Turns out that's not true. Shorthand is highly personal. Uh, There might be some overlap between yours and mine, but honestly, probably not that much. So what shorthand works for you to get a story moving? And what clever name can you call your shorthand to make you more likely to use it? Errata. Two quick tidbits of extras that didn't quite fit anywhere else. Both quotes from Agatha herself, whether in letter, form, or otherwise. One, quote, The reason I began to write was in order to avoid having to talk to people. Same, girl. Same. Two. Okay, so I'm including this because I'm obsessed with author schedules, and I think a lot of other writers are too. This is Christie's accounting of one of her working holiday, not her everyday, days. Mm. Breakfast at 8, meditation till 9, violent hitting of the typewriter till 11.30 or the end of a chapter, chapter. Sometimes, if it is a lovely day, I cheat to make it a short one. Then to the beach and plunge into the sea. After tea, some more work, sometimes no work but asleep. 8.30 dinner and afterwards work if I've slept. Honestly, this is the best schedule. Epilogue. Y'all, we made it to the end. I feel like I learned a ton from a compulsively readable and almost gossipy book, and I've got a whole smorgasbord of things I want to experiment with in my own writing. Top of mind for me are populating the curio cabinet with interesting collections and specimens from my daily life to bring out to the work table to fit together in the rigors of form and plot, and developing my own list of Christie tricks to use as shorthand. I'd love to hear what you're going to try, and if you've got recommendations for other author biographies or memoirs to mine for writerly advice. You can find me on X at Sarah Beth G-Dub and Instagram at Sarah George Waterfield, both in the show notes. Also in the show notes, a link to Lucy Worsley's book and some extra resources related to today's episode. All right, y'all. It's been real. Let's get writering. We're going to workshop that.